0: Good evening, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Tectonic. My name is Mark Hurst. I will be your host for the next hour here on WFMU Freeform Station of the Nation, coming at you live from downtown Jersey City in the great state of New Jersey. I'm very happy to be with you this evening and very happy to present you a fascinating interview with Carolyn Chen, who's written a book called Work Pray Code, When Work Becomes Religion in Silicon Valley. So we're going to be talking about work and religion in Silicon Valley. And to the extent that Silicon Valley and the tech industry is a bellwether for the rest of the country and the rest of the world, I think, unfortunately, we may see some of these same effects coming to your neighborhood, wherever you may live and work. So listen up, <laughs> because as with so many other things... What happens in Silicon Valley is a kind of a dystopian prediction of where we may all be headed. And Carolyn Chen has done a great job of researching and analyzing presenting us with the findings of of her research there in Silicon Valley. Before we get to that interview, I just want to say a couple of things. Um, one is that a few weeks ago, a couple months ago, I had on the show an author named Craig Taylor who, had, who wrote a book called New Yorkers, which was an oral history of New York City. There are New Yorkers from all five boroughs who he interviewed and put into this book from all different kinds of uh, professions and areas of, of interest, and um, I really loved the book. And I just wanted to let you know that New Yorkers is now out in paperback. <laughs> so you, you you come to Tectonic for all the book news, right? And I wanted to update you on this uh, this author and his book uh, that um, the book is, is well worth reading. If you have any interest in New York City, you can also go back into the archives and listen to the interview. You can find the archives at WFMU.org. You can also go to the tectonic one-page website which is at tectonic.fm t-e-c-h tonic.fm the other announcement i wanted to make was that um as some of you may know if you've been listening to the station pretty much any show over the last several days you may have heard the uh, the sad news that one of our djs has been injured in a motorbike accident his name is bryce and uh there if you'd like to uh, chip in for Bryce's uh, medical expenses and see the details there. You can go to the playlist and see that the station has set up a GoFundMe, and uh, a lot of people have been really uh, generous. So thanks for that. And you can find the details uh, on the playlist at wfmu.org. Just click playlist and comments. And Bryce, if you're listening, I know he uh, has listened to the show in the past. We we hope you feel better soon. Let's go ahead and listen to this interview with Carolyn Chen. We're going to be talking about uh, her new book. Again, it's called Work, Pray, Code, here on Tectonic on WFMU. Carolyn Chen, welcome to Tectonic.
1: Thank you. Happy to be here, Mark.
0: Carolyn, you have a new book out called Work, Pray, Code, When Work Becomes Religion in Silicon Valley. This is a fabulous book, by the way. I loved this book from beginning to end, and I have a strong recommendation for Tectonic listeners. If they they resonate with this topic, they should go out and get this. This is a book that asks the question, what happens when people worship work? and specifically you're examining work in Silicon Valley in the tech industry as you conducted over 100 in-depth interviews with tech workers between 2013 and 2019. And I wanted to start us off by asking if we can just establish how you're using the word worship. Do you mean that in a literal sense that work in the tech industry is taking on the form of religious devotion?
1: Yes, actually, I am. Um, so the question of you know how do we define worship? And here, the way that I'm defining worship is, we know that we worship something when we submit and we surrender to it, when we devote all of our time and energy and resources to it, and that's what I'm seeing here. Um, I think that this is the you know the French sociologist Emile Durkheim talks about the sacred. And that we know what is sacred in our society when we see that, you know, people submit, they sacrifice and they surrender to it. You know, we often talk about people worshiping work sort of like as a sometimes we use religious metaphors, right, to describe work. But I think that what I'm trying to describe in the book is a little bit different than just the idiosyncratic person who's a workaholic. Rather, what I'm trying to describe here in Silicon Valley is an actual social ecosystem where workplaces have have taken on the functions of religious institutions. And because of that, people are worshiping work.
0: Some people listening to this may, if they have any experience in the tech industry, they may say, well, the, the tech industry is a very secular place. Mm-hmm. Um and in fact you do mention in some of your interviews there were some religious believers who you interviewed who talked about having to hide any uh mm. evidence of their religious faith within the tech industry. So so in a way the tech industry does seem especially secular but it and you make this point throughout the book that it does not necessarily mean that there is no belief in mm. the tech industry. And there's a there's a quote from David Foster Wallace that I've always mm-hmm. liked, and I was so happy to see it in the book. I think it was part of a um, maybe a commencement speech he yes, gave it once. Was, is exactly. that right? Yeah. And here's the quote: In the day to day trenches of adult life, there is actually no such thing as atheism. There is no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship, mm-hmm. and. While I'm not a, the biggest fan of Wallace and <laughs> some of his other writings, I thought he hit the nail on the head in that mm-hmm. quote that belief is – and worship, to use this word, is, is always present. And what you're pointing out in the book, Carolyn, I think, is that as the tech industry has pushed out traditional forms of belief, mm-hmm. those traditional religious forms of worship have been replaced – by something else, which you write very explicitly in the book is a religion. It's it's a religion mm-hmm. of work, and it's a specific religion that has grown up in the Bay Area mm-hmm. in the tech industry.
1: Yeah, yeah. So let me elaborate on that more. So I'm actually a scholar of religion. I'm, I'm a sociologist of religion. So coming into the tech industry and studying and, and businesses, it was really... Completely foreign to me, and something that was really new to me. One of the really interesting patterns that I found in my study, as you mentioned, I interviewed over a hundred folks, was that people who used to be religious, that after they moved to Silicon Valley, because most people from Silicon Valley are not from there, I call them tech migrants, essentially, they all move from somewhere else. But these people who used to be religious, that once they moved to Silicon Valley and started working in tech companies that they lost their religion. They were no longer religious anymore. However, it became really clear to me as their stories unfolded is that they hadn't lost religion. In fact, they converted to another religion. It was the religion that the workplace provided. So in my book, I talk about um, an engineer um, who is an entrepreneur as well, who's called John, that I call John Ashton, and I use pseudonyms in my book, and he's from Georgia, and he was a very pious evangelical Christian who used to be the president of his Christian fraternity, um, and all was very involved in his church, um, and it was really the center of his life. You know, he had this nine-to-five job as a computer programmer in Atlanta, and then when he moved, then he rec- got recruited by a startup, his startup essentially became his new faith community. The startup was called um, Harmony and everyone in the company took on this new identity. They called themselves Harmonizers. They basically ate all their meals together. They did all their social activities together. They had a very articulated mission, which is what religions do too. They had um, their rituals and their practices. And they also had the sense of faith. And this is one of the things that I really... That's really important, especially in the startup culture in Silicon Valley, is that nine out of 10 startups fail. And yet you devote the vast amount of your time and energy to this whole enterprise that you think is going to fail. So it by nature requires faith, you know, and so is the same kind of faith that might one might have in a religious faith, but it was instead that, you know, we're going to be one of those companies that succeed. So... Earlier, his church had provided him with a strong sense of identity, a strong sense of belonging, community, and meaning and purpose, a sense of transcendence and even spiritual care. Now, all of these things are now provided by the quote unquote faith community of his company. And so that's the way that I'm saying that work is replacing religion. Workplaces are now taking on the functions and meeting those needs that Americans once had had once turned to their religious institutions to fulfill.
0: And I want to emphasize that this book does not just cover the experience of startups because mm-hmm. some people could say, well, of course, he spends a lot of time as, at his startup. That's what startup teams do. No, no, no. You're covering in in uh, work, pray code. You're covering startups and mid-sized companies and giant companies all the way up to the likes of Google and Apple and Salesforce and companies like that. What you're arguing is that throughout Silicon Valley, there is a culture of this religious devotion that has very common patterns, no matter the size of the company. As you say, the employees are expected to spend all of their time at the company or even outside of the company walls being available for work all of their major relationships socially should be formed and maintained within the company. Their meals are generally eaten with fellow uh, Mm -hmm. believers from from their workplace. (laughs) In fact, you contrasted this with the experience of people who do not sign on totally with the cult Mm -hmm. of their workplace. And in an interesting use of language, you say that the true believers are the massive tech workers in Silicon Valley. The non-believers, as you call them, are the ones who don't fully sign on because their identity is not fully determined by the workplace. And it's often because they're actual believers in another religion.
1: Exactly, yes.
0: <laughs> so the non-believers who could be Christians, Jewish, Muslim, Buddhist, Hindu, or what have you. And you told the story of one of them. This gentleman who was a family man who loved his family, loved spending time with his wife and kids. And if I remember correctly, he was very involved in his Christian church, but he was a non-believer. And why don't you tell the rest of the story? (laughs)
1: Yeah, yeah, and I should just add also that I had I've been giving examples of people who are um from the Christian faith tradition, but it, it they could be people of all different religious faiths. They needn't be Christian. But yes, in the case of this person that I interviewed, and I call him Carl in my book, one of the things that differentiates him also from the other folks in his startup is that he's older. So he's in his 50s and he's part of this executive team um, of the company and everyone else is in their late 20s. And essentially they're like the true believers uh, and they, they, they're totally gung-ho, the mission, the purpose, like they are spend all their time together, all their meals together. They're all in. But the difference with him is that he's older, he has a family, and he has these attachments outside of work. So essentially, he belongs, and he literally belongs to a religion, right, (laughs) to a faith community outside of work. And what happens is that this church, his family, in a sense, they're competing for his devotion, and they lay claim to his time and energy and his passion, And so he ends up not participating in the company meditation. He doesn't socialize with the rest of the team. And he tells me that he tries very hard to close his computer at five o'clock on Friday and not look at it over the weekend. And then several years later, I ended up running into the CEO and we were talking and I said, you know, how's, how's the company going? And he said, oh, it's all good. You know, we're all still here but we had to let Carl go. <laughs> and, and I wasn't surprised because he simply didn't fit into that culture. And that was something that I heard repeatedly um, among, first of all, older people. So this is like in their late forties or fifties who had were a generation of folks who had a much clearer separation between work and life. They are also of a generation that had the habit or were socialized into participating in civic institutions outside of the workplace. The other thing with them is that many of the older workers had become jaded with the religion of work because of the recession and sort of the tech bust in the 90s and the early 2000s. So they knew that even though their companies had promised them all this stuff, that they weren't going to come through in the end. So here, just to reiterate, There are two groups of people who essentially were able to resist that pull in the vortex of work. And these were people who were older and they were also people who were religious. So religious people who were younger also were able to resist it because essentially they were so involved in a different faith community and they were committed to that. I talk about in the book, they were very conscious of essentially rationing their time and they didn't act like the other tech workers. They might've eaten some of their meals there, but they didn't work out there. They didn't join the clubs at work. They didn't do any of their socializing at work. They had far fewer friends at work. That was a big deal. And instead they had this other group that basically defined them and that they belong to. But really, it was hard. I mean, they told me what they needed to do in order to be able to have a life outside of work. And in the case of Carl, it came with obviously with these professional costs as well.
0: And companies right now are increasingly focused on the spiritual care, as they claim, of their employees, part of what you call corporate maternalism, investing at times in what they claim to be the, the well-being or the wholeness of their employees. And we should note when we talk about the corporate maternalism and, and the benefits and perks that are being showered on the employees, we're really talking about higher level employees like engineers and product managers as opposed to people who have blue collar jobs and are often mm-hmm. part of contracted organizations like food service workers yes. are not mm-hmm. part of this and you do cover that in the book the widening inequality in Silicon Valley, Mm -hmm. but to dwell for a moment on the maternalism that is bestowed Mm -hmm. upon these higher level white collar workers. Here's a good example of some of the benefits that these companies are providing, and this is a quote about some of the larger companies. You write, Google, Apple, Salesforce, and LinkedIn now have dedicated meditation rooms in their buildings, Mm -hmm. and many companies are teaching their employees meditation. Okay, so Google and others are teaching their employees meditation. They have built out spaces physically in their buildings for meditation. And this is just one of the many types of activity that these companies are providing for employees to to find themselves at work.
1: Yes, absolutely. Corporate maternalism, as well as the spiritual care that we're seeing that companies are providing, is based on this idea that I call the personal is the professional. So it's a play on, you know, the personal is the political. Many of the people that I interviewed are HR professionals um, in Silicon Valley. And it's the idea that people produce and perform their best when their bodies, minds, and spirits are in the optimal condition. And No one could argue with that, right? We are our best as parents. We are best as workers. We are best as friends, as spouses, when we are, when we feel healthy, both in, you know, in mind, body and spirit in all ways, right? Now, the companies have taken this very seriously, and HR has, especially in their maternal care of their workers. So for their bodies and for their minds and spirits. So the spiritual care is what companies are also providing. So they're bringing meditation. They're bringing mindfulness into companies. They're bringing spiritual leaders and religious leaders to come and give inspirational talks They have professional development seminars, which really give people the time to reflect and give them sort of spiritual practices to reflect on what their purpose is in life, what is the most important to them. In the book I write about, in one case, a company that had always been known for being one of the best workplaces in Silicon Valley, they'd recently gone through this acquisition, and the executive's team was just, the performance was really flagging. And so his solution was to actually bring in a Dharma teacher and to create a mindfulness program. And they created essentially these small group pods, which uh, the Dharma teacher referred to me as sanghas, which is essentially spiritual communities, where people could learn to be authentic with one another and to share their struggles and to learn spiritual practices. One person who was Buddhist said, yeah, I'm learning Buddhism in my company and I'm getting paid for it, you know? And in companies especially invest in the spiritual development of their senior employees, so their senior leaders, and they assign them with executive coaches. And so I spent a lot of time with executive coaches. I interviewed them. I went to their training seminars. And for many of them, they introduce and they bring in spiritual practices. They train executives into spiritual practices. So essentially that they could align the deepest parts of themselves with their work.
0: And we're back. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to Tectonic on WFMU. My name is Mark Hurst, your host, and we are halfway through my interview with Carolyn Chen, author of the new book, Work, Pray, Code, When Work Becomes Religion in Silicon Valley. We're having a good discussion on the comment board. If you'd like to join in, go to WFMU.org and click playlist and comments. If you're listening to an archive or podcast in the future, you can find it by going to tectonic.fm, T-E-C-H tonic.fm, and find the playlist link from May 9, 2022. Scroll down, you can see all our comments. From the past, maybe the distant past, how is it in the future? (laughs) I always wonder that when talking into the future to podcast listeners. Anyway, let's go ahead and listen to second half of my interview with Carolyn Chen, author of Work, Pray, Code, here on Tectonic on WFMU. Listeners listening to some of these practices of mindfulness and meditation and dharma, they can get a sense that there is an undercurrent of, I wouldn't call it Buddhism, but maybe Buddhist inflected practice in Silicon Valley yeah uh, <laughs> you have a great section on what you call whitened Buddhism, or in another place you call it the Ambient Buddhism of the Bay mm-hmm. Area, which distinguishes it from let 's say traditional Buddhism with ritual and belief mm-hmm. and and certain practices. Why is Silicon Valley embracing? From the panoply of world religions that it could choose from, why is it embracing Buddhism and how did it turn into what you're calling whitened Buddhism?
1: Yeah, so the story here is really, um, it's a regional story. The Bay Area was the epicenter of, we could say, white American Buddhism in the 20th century. You had the Beats who were hanging out in San Francisco, um, and then you have the counterculture in the 60s and 70s, the establishment of the San Francisco Zen Center in the 60s. But what's happened in these earlier years is that essentially these were countercultural and marginal groups. These were artists and folks who very much rejected capitalism, right? And the establishment who were attracted to these Eastern religions. And for them, you know, if you think about the counterculture in the 70s, in the book, I I compare the migration of young people in the 70s who came from the counterculture, right? And their purpose was largely for... um, really the expanding of their spiritual consciousness for exploration to escape the the confines of their WASP upbringings. Whereas you see the tech migrants who are now coming, who come in the 2000s, are coming because they want to be in the belly of the beast. They actually really, they are coming for work and really for very much economic and career reasons. So very, very, very different groups, right? And yet they're both utilizing meditation. So let me just back up here because I want to answer your question. Why are they using these Asian spiritual practices and particularly Buddhism? The historical context is simply that there is that there's a historical legacy of these Asian religious traditions and Buddhism in the Bay Area. However, it is something that develops among a very countercultural and marginal group in the 50s, 60s, and 70s. But these folks, of which people like Steve Jobs are actually a part of, then move from the margins to the mainstream, Um, and they take with them many of these spiritual practices that they used to practice. So, Steve Jobs uh, is an example of someone who, you know, when he was in his 20s, he traveled to India and he wanted to, you know, join an ashram. And he continued throughout his life was a devoted meditator. And now you see tech folks today that are like, well, what did Steve Jobs do? You know, he's (laughs) he's a god. What, What are what were his practices? And so many of the executive coaches, the meditation and mindfulness teachers, the Dharma teachers that I interviewed, these were folks who actually came to the Bay Area in the 60s and 70s, um, and they were part of the counterculture, people who I call mystics, because their approach to Buddhism and meditation mindfulness is very much more as a mystic. Many of them are actually now the spiritual providers for these tech companies,
0: Yeah, there's some poignant stories from your interviews of those mystics, as you say, who are really trying to continue their practices with integrity. And as the cost of living in the Bay Area has skyrocketed, some of them find that the only way they can make ends meet and still provide some of their services to community groups is to do a deal with the tech companies. Mm -hmm. And you go into some detail about how they have to change their presentation, they have to change their language in a lot of instances and really conform to the needs of the current power center, which is the Silicon Valley tech companies, in order to make enough cash just to survive. Mm -hmm. But picking up on this idea of the mystics, this was one of my favorite parts of the book, this regional history of Silicon Valley and why things are the way they are today. The way I saw it, and this could be off base, you're the expert, you could tell me, but I, I see demographics playing a part here. Mm-hmm. The mystics, you had this demographic boom, the baby boom after mm-hmm. World War II. Mm-hmm. The baby boomers, this is oversimplifying, but the baby boomers mm-hmm. turned into hippies. The hippies mm-hmm. moved west, got into psychedelics, and mm-hmm. did their Grateful Dead thing and so on. So they're the hippies. And then the next demographic boom is their kids, the millennials. Mm-hmm. And the millennials grew up at a time where the religion, the cult of money and technology is mm-hmm. really ascendant, and so they move west in a bid to become Steve Jobs. <laughs> and you call them the users. So mm-hmm. the boomers are the mystics, and the millennials are the users. And whereas the mystics were trying to pursue enlightenment, and some sort of organic (laughs) communitarian nirvana, the users are adopting some of those same practices of meditation and so on that you listed before. And you have this great quote, the users treat meditation as a system update for the mind, a tool to adapt to the frenetic pace of work. And thinking of meditation as a system update is so perfect. The person who comes to mind is actually... Not exactly one of the millennials, but one of my contemporaries from Gen X is Jack Dorsey, who Mm -hmm. very famously came back from a meditation trip in Myanmar and said something like, I was hacking the lowest layers of my mind. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I'm sorry to look at this skeptically, maybe even cynically, but I'm Gen X. I'm right in the middle of the mystics and the users.
1: (laughs) I'm Gen X too. (laughs)
0: So all of this comes to a head at one particular moment that you write about in a hot tub at Esalen.
1: Yeah. Okay. So just to give a little bit of background here, when I call them users, um, I call them users as meaning users of religious technology. Um, And that's how they approach religious and spiritual practices as essentially these are tools that I can come in and come out of. I could just use for whatever i want to use it for right um which is different from mystics who actually had a a much more community as you said a community sense so many of them i mean they were people who belonged to communes they started the san francisco zen center they felt like they they organized their sense of belonging and community around their spiritual quest so that's a very different orientation towards meditation and mindfulness So the scene that you are talking about is something that one of the users, uh, so a millennial entrepreneur, shared with me. He went on a retreat at Esalen, which is a really famous sort of New Age retreat center um, in Big Sur along the coast of California. So one of the um, this entrepreneur goes to Esalen for a retreat on you know, on meditation and and tech. And it's a very special invitation-only retreat where only other entrepreneurs are gathered. And so they're all hanging out in the hot tubs, which are clothing optional. So they're all naked, right? What he describes is the awkwardness. And here, their physical nakedness, I think, is just simply a metaphor for the nakedness of this interaction of what happens is that he and his entrepreneur friends Um, they're going and they're getting in the hot tub and the hot tub has now been occupied by the people who used to go to Esalen, the folks from the counterculture, these are the mystics and they're sitting in there and they're all naked and, you know, and he and his entrepreneur friends are all high and they're talking really, really loud. And they're talking all about like uh, getting funded, about venture capital and, you know, and how like, you know, and they're talking, kind of talking about like, tens and millions of dollars and kind of just they're talking shop and they're being really obnoxious. And this one entrepreneur that I interviewed says, well, after a while, you know, is really awkward because these other people were not obviously not part of our group. And here we are all naked and they eventually just leave the hot tub. And I share this story in my book because I think that's it so perfectly illustrates what is happening in the Bay Area that here is in regards to Asian spiritual traditions and to Buddhism is that it used to be something that had a certain kind of meaning for a certain population that was about mysticism, that was about spiritual quest. And now it's totally been taken over by these entrepreneurs who basically get into the hot tub and colonize the hot tub. So the other folks have to leave.
0: (laughs) And what we're left with is a culture in Silicon Valley in which work has become religion and it's all in service of growth at any cost. This, this value, this overriding value that we've seen again and again over the years from the big tech companies and other companies that are trying to be acquired by those companies or work with those companies, growth, growth, growth. And within this, as you call this frenetic pace of work, the high-tech workers are spending all of their time and emotional energy and and cognitive energy all within these companies. And so the companies respond by announcing that they're going to take care of the employees. Mm-hmm. They're going to be the employees' full world. They're going to give this brand of maternal care, as mm-hmm. as you put it in the book. You made this point very well in the book that the companies are doing this not ultimately for the long-term benefit of the employees, but for the reason that the company needs to extract the most productivity Mm -hmm. and the highest performance out of these employees. And that yields a mismatch, a central mismatch that I wrote in my notes, which is that the company pretends to care about employees while controlling their lives in service of profit or growth, while at the same time, the employees become fully dependent on the company, thus forming a personal identity centered on the company as though the company cared for them, as though it was an actual family or community worthy of forming a personal identity around where does this end, Carolyn, because this is not a sustainable mismatch going forward?
1: Right. Absolutely. It's not a sustainable match. And, you know, so many of us struggle with what we call work-life balance, right? Um, and so essentially what companies do, these tech companies do, is that they their solution to work-life balance is to essentially provide for the life. Essentially, they take care of life so that these folks are able to have meaningful and fulfilling and purposeful lives but you're right that in the end this is this is not sustainable and it was really clear in folks who had what i call a crisis of faith and who ended up leaving companies i'll describe one person in particular who was you know similar story that i'd heard from so many other people she was an entrepreneur was all in in the company, had all of her meals, all of her friends, her whole sense of purpose, all of her time, energy devoted to the company, and this was all in the hopes of an acquisition or an IPO. And there was this highly anticipated acquisition which they had been talking about for you know months, and but it fell through. And when that acquisition fell through, she went into she just couldn't work there anymore. She just went into this deep existential crisis of a year which she told she called in very dramatic terms she said it was a death to herself and she said that she didn't know who she was anymore and she realized that she didn't even know what she liked she she said from the very basic things she said i didn't even know what i wanted to eat anymore what i like to eat because essentially all those things were provided by the company she said i didn't know what i valued like without the company, she realized she was just a shell. She was nothing. And so she describes taking this whole year and she had the privilege, she had the luxury, the funds to be able to do this. But this whole year going through this spiritual quest where she worked with a therapist, she worked with a shaman and sort of figuring out, you know, who she was. Uh, But this was extremely, it was completely devastating to her. It wasn't sustainable. You know, it was... And what if her company did, it? what if the acquisition was successful? At one time or another, the company is going to disappoint her, right? And so absolutely, it's not its not sustainable for individuals. It costs us as individuals, spiritually, personally, emotionally, in all these different ways. But it's also a cost to our society as well. I, I talk about what I call techtopia in my book. Techtopia is a society where work becomes the highest form of fulfillment. And I use techtopia and Silicon Valley as a techtopia, um, where essentially work becomes their meaning, purpose, identity, because the company provides all of these things, right? Because it makes them higher performing and more productive. But what happens in techtopias is, so you have to think about it as a whole social ecosystem, is that companies are like this giant powerful magnet. And that's attracting all the time and energy and devotion of the community. But then it starves all the other social institutions. So these are the smaller and weaker magnets that's essentially grow weaker and weaker with time because they're not being fed because the big magnet of the workplace is attracting everything. So these smaller magnets, these are our civic institutions. These are our institutions like our family. We talk all the time about the family and, and work, at least, you know sociologists do, right? But we've never named these other institutions which have been starving and which have been paying the price for the worship of work. And these are our faith communities. These are our, uh, you know, these are our rotary clubs. These are our neighborhood associations. These are softball leagues, et cetera, et cetera. So these are the institutions that might give us a sense of identity and belonging and meaning outside of work. And yet they're being starved. And so there is a big price. There's a cost that we pay for this.
0: And along these lines, Carolyn, you're making the point that the stakes are really high. It's not just about whether an employee spends too much time at a company and gets too wrapped up in it. This is a societal problem. You write, in Tectopia, such as Silicon Valley, companies replace all other potential providers of social support, families, local businesses, neighborhoods, and public services, and then a few pages later, you tie it into infrastructure. You write, techtopia causes social inequality by turning public goods and services into private company perks. On top of that, tech companies' aggressive tax avoidance tactics have strangled cities and counties' capacity to build such services. So what we're seeing in Silicon Valley, and I certainly hope it's not a bellwether for the rest of the country, is that companies are sucking up all of the resources, both economic and social and spiritual, and internalizing all of them and really using those all as tools in service of the company's growth at any cost goal. Life and society and community outside of those companies becomes starved, as you said. And we're seeing the results of that in Silicon Valley now where employees either have a choice to join the cult of the company or get lost because there's nothing really left. Mm -hmm. And so what your book, Work, Pray, Code, is bringing up is an urgent warning, in my opinion, Mm -hmm. that we should really pay attention to what's happening out there.
1: Yes, yes. Actually, Mark, you said that better than I could have. (laughs) Um, And I call that my last chapter of Techtopia, privatized wholeness and public brokenness. Um, Wholeness was just a term that folks in HR kept on using again and again with me. Like, we want to bring, we want you to bring your whole self to work. Um, We want to create wholeness in the workplace. Well, they are creating wholeness in the workplace, but it's at the cost of the brokenness of the public. You know, people talk a lot about the Google buses and about all the company buses that essentially tech workers don't rely on the public transportation system because the companies have provided their own, you know, transport, privatized transport systems, which are much more efficient, at least for the workers. But what it happens then is that. It takes away any kind of political will to actually change and invest in the public transportation system, right? Um, So this is just one example, but I would talk to faith leaders and they would tell me, oh, you know, my congregation is dwindling. People don't have time to come anymore because they're at work. And so then what do these faith communities do? Well, in the case of one Zen temple, the Zen priest said to me, well, they're not coming to the services at the temple So I'm going to bring meditation to work. But what happens when you bring meditation to work? Well, basically, you have to make meditation and Buddhist teachings conform to the needs of the tech company. And you need to strip out all of the ethical teachings. In another case, just if I could share one more example, one tech worker who was actually very involved in local politics just told me that, he'd been in the neighborhood for a long time and he watched the change, the shift in the demographic population of his neighborhood to become more and more engineers. And that there was a park in his neighborhood that the city was going to close. And they had a, a sign that said, "You know, we'll come to this public hearing and and show up and we can talk about it. And no one showed up because they just were not, they didn't care, they weren't engaged in their neighborhood. I, I think that what we're seeing is this public disengagement and this public apathy, because essentially the companies take care of everything. It's all already, it's it's privatized.
0: The book, again, is called Work, Pray, Code, When Work Becomes Religion in Silicon Valley by my guest today, Carolyn Chen. This is a great book. Thank you so much for taking the years to do the research and write this and share this with us. Strong recommendation for all Tectonic listeners for this book. And Carolyn, thanks so much for being on the show, and I hope you'll be back sometime.
1: Thank you, Mark.
0: And we're back. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to Tectonic on WFMU. My name is Mark Hurst. I will be your host for the remaining, what is it, 13 minutes of the show. And then DJ Arb is going to come on with another great episode of The Arbitrarium. So stay tuned for that at the top of the hour. We just heard my interview with Carolyn Chen, author of the new book, Work, Pray, Code When Work Becomes Religion in Silicon Valley. We had a good conversation on the comments board, which again, if you're listening in the future, you can find at tectonic.fm, t-e-c-h tonic.fm. A lot of comments, people weighing in about their own experience working at tech companies, Intel and others. Experiences in Esselin hot tubs in the 1970s. <laughs> we have a wide range of experiences being shared on the comment board this evening. Uh, but I appreciated. Um, I appreciated all the comments, but a couple I want to point out. One is from Paul Robeson, 1922, writes that Neil Postman called it the promotion of one deity, even a technological one, requires the trivialization of all others. And yes, Neil Postman comes up a lot on the comment board on this show, and I need to probably dive into more of Postman's work, like Technopoly, and cover that on. A future show or shows, because uh, to Carolyn Chen's point that Silicon Valley is turning work into a religion, uh, Neil Postman was warning us about that 20 years ago or 25 years ago, whenever it was that his his books were coming out. That our uh, our non metaphorical literal worship of technology and these technological platforms is building a kind of a religion, um, even for the, the people outside of the companies who are simply caught up as users and communities affected. So that's very much a, a tectonic topic that we should return to. Webhamster Henry brings up a TV series. A couple people agreed with him. Uh, Henry writes, for a really good satire on this theme, check out Severance on Apple TV. So this is a TV show called severance i haven't seen it yet but i'm i'm aware of it and i know i probably should watch it uh i don't um i am not asking you to give apple a a a red cent, but i i um also think that if you can't go to a friend's house and watch it with them there uh i would recommend a legal way of getting it and i think you can pay apple a few dollars and just get a subscription long enough to watch Severance and then turn it back off <laughs> turn off that subscription. But I have heard good things about Severance, so I may have to go and, and watch that. Um, what can we say about this, about this topic? What else can we say about this topic of religion in Silicon Valley? I just wanted to underline that demographic shift, which I referenced on the playlist. I always have these little meme graphics, and there is... There's a bunch of memes out there that compare uh, baby boomers to millennials. And there's one you can, I'm not going to give it away. You can find it on the playlist, at wfmu.org. Click playlist and comments. There does seem to be a demographic shift at work right now in that the baby boomers who uh, drove a, an aspect of American culture back in the 60s and 70s and into the 80s first by going out west to achieve enlightenment, and that was, uh, of course, Steve Jobs' uh, generation going out to, uh, to try out the communes and, and experiment for fun, for enlightenment with, with these new digital experimental technologies out there. And then, it, and then the internet started to, uh, started to really spread and get funded, and then my generation, Gen X, which is the blip that's always forgotten somehow, went out and who knows what we did that's been forgotten and then come the millennials and since since the millennials are the next big group after the boomers then the millennials are the next group after the boomers to really have influence in the culture and i fee i feel that uh, i and, and my fellow gen xers we are uh we are i feel like we are generally astute observers rather than participants because gen x is never part of this so we see the boomers declining in their influence as they retire and we see the millennials increasing in their influence as they are taking the jobs that of course got passed over the heads of gen xers went straight to the millennials and the millennials also went west in a in a parallel to their, their uh, boomer parents, they also went West, except they didn't go out for enlightenment. They went out for the money and power that was on offer on the West Coast. And I don't mean that as a condemnation. I think that's what was on offer, was the money and power and growth at any cost. Their jobs at Google, jobs at Facebook, and they pay a lot. So wh- why else would you go West? And once they get out there, they see that uh, or we can all we can all observe right now that these companies, to Carolyn Chen's final point in the interview, these companies are sucking up all of the resources that used to go into into the tax base that would support you know. To her for final example, that park, that park somewhere in I don't know where in pa- Palo Alto or Sunnyvale or somewhere. Somewhere in Silicon Valley, the park closed because no one was, no one was invested in, in a communitarian project like that. They were all too busy at work going to another meeting and no one got active in their community and the park closed. And then public transportation, uh, you know, is, is being unfunded generally out there because why should, why should we fund it? Because all of the powerful people already have a bus that, to take them from their apartment in San Francisco down onto the peninsula to Google headquarters or wherever. And that reminds me of what Alec McGillis wrote in the book Fulfillment. That's another interview that dovetails really well with this one. Go back and listen in the archives to my interview with Alec McGillis, where he's talking about how Amazon, there's a book about Amazon, Amazon is cutting these terrible deals with municipalities that essentially are sucking the communities dry of the tax base because these, these warehouses and, and data centers don't pay their fair share of taxes. These companies are arrogating themselves, this is my, my point that I'm driving at, whether it's Amazon throughout the country or it's Google and Facebook and, and Apple and the others on the West Coast, these companies are arrogating themselves to a divine position in our society. By, by establishing themselves as the source of all money, all power, all influence, all knowledge, and all truth. And the only way that you can survive according to them, the only way that you can survive is by joining them. Best if you're a white collar employee, uh, higher up the totem pole, the better. But if you can't join them as an employee, then go ahead and bury your face into their surveillance device and walk around all the time looking into your surveillance device because at least you're plugged into the source of truth and power in this society and i don't want any part of that i mean maybe i'll kick i'll have to kick apple a few dollars to go watch severance and then i'll turn off my subscription after that there are certain things we have to do but for the most part i want to avoid my myself my, speaking for myself i want to avoid this new religion And I want to finish with a poem by Wendell Berry. This is one I've been hanging on to. This is one of his Mad Farmer poems from, I think this is from 2014. This has to do with this interview tonight. Here's what Wendell Berry writes. Love the quick profit, the annual raise, vacation with pay. Want more of everything ready-made. Be afraid to know your neighbors and to die. And you will have a window in your head. Not even your future will be a mystery anymore. Your mind will be punched in a card and shut away in a little drawer. When they want you to buy something, they will call you. When they want you to die for profit, they will let you know. So, friends, every day do something that won't compute. Love the Lord. Love the world. Work for nothing. Take all that you have and be poor. Love someone who does not deserve it. Denounce the government and embrace the flag. Hope to live in that free republic for which it stands. Give your approval to all you cannot understand. Praise ignorance for what man has not encountered, he has not destroyed. Ask the questions that have no answers. Invest in the millennium, plant sequoias. Say that your main crop is the forest that you did not plant, that you will not live to harvest. Say that the leaves are harvested when they have rotted into the mold. Call that prophet. Prophesy such returns. Put your faith in the two inches of humus that will build under the trees every thousand years. Listen to carrion. Put your ear close and hear the faint chattering of the songs that are to come. Expect the end of the world. Laugh. Laughter is immeasurable. Be joyful, though you have considered all the facts. So long as women do not go cheap for power, please women more than men. Ask yourself, will this satisfy a woman satisfied to bear a child? Will this disturb the sleep of a woman near to giving birth? Go with your love to the fields. Lie down in the shade. Rest your head in her lap. Swear allegiance to what is nighest your thoughts. As soon as the generals and the politicos can predict the motions of your mind, lose it. Leave it as a sign to mark the false trail, the way you didn't go. Be like the fox who makes more tracks than necessary, some in the wrong direction. Practice resurrection. And that, friends, is the Mad Farmer poem, one of them, by Wendell Berry from 2014. And you have been listening to the greatest radio station of the world, WFMU East Orange, WMFU Mount Hope in New York City and Rockland County at 91.9 FM and online at WFMU.org. I'm off next week. The great Dave Mandel will be sitting in, guest hosting, so treat him right. And until next time, friends, you know what to do. Avoid Amazon and Apple. Forget Facebook. And whatever you do, whatever you do, get off Google and stay tuned for DJ Arb and the Arbitrarium. Have a great week.
1: Welcome to the Arbitrarium, capital of the country of Arbsurdistan, raising the red flag of worship, and we are
2: here
3: to bring you
2: the news. The news
3: is a dream. When I heard someone say that, it got me thinking, how can the news be a dream? One is real and one isn't, right? Right. You've heard the old bit. When you finally keel over and croak, you'll wake up on the other side and look back at this life and say, now that was an interesting dream. Maybe. It's
2: hard to the desert when there's things
1: with me in my kitchen I listen to you or the sun reaches the horizon you are talking telling me that you were always too good for him right from the beginning too good for him that he never deserved you and that he never was as good and bad as all the others that you've had